Awesome. Hey, we want to thank those of you who uh, have camped at church the last week. We know, we know some of you spent more time here than you did at your own house, and we appreciate all the support and prayers and just how this community has rallied. This last week, I've gotten messages from people in Iceland, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, West Africa, South America, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, literally people from around the world who, for whatever reason, were tuning in and watching our Revival Extended Services Miracle after miracle after miracle, testimony after testimony, people even watching from nations that are close to the gospel saying, hey, as we were watching this, it was like the presence of God filled our house. We're with you. We're contending for revival. We're halfway around the world, but we're standing with you for a move of God in the Northwest. And, uh, you know, sometimes as, as a pastor, especially in the charismatic stream, sometimes people will ask, you know, when's the last time you've seen a miracle? I just showed you a six and a half minute highlight clip of miracle after miracle after miracle. And God is moving by his spirit. And we're really seeing some uh, incredible things. And as we've been praying as a team and, and, and as a staff, We've really felt like the Lord is asking us to set aside some time just to seek him, to seek his face. Yeah, we know Sunday mornings is a little chaotic. By the time you find a parking spot, hopefully find a seat here on Sunday morning, make your way in, and you get in, and then as soon as service is really going, it's time to leave, and there's another crowd that's coming. We know sometimes that those environments are a little difficult to really wait on the Lord and seek the Lord and, and take as much time as we would want. And so we're announcing today that for the month of September and October and November, we're going to be hosting extended services on these dates. And we're going to have special guests flying in to join us, and we'll announce them at a later date. And as you'll notice, these are weekends. They're Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We're trying to keep the calendar as family-friendly as possible. But we wanted to let you know as soon as we knew as a team that, that, that we're going to set aside time to seek the Lord. Something so special is happening right now in this community. And uh, it's our response to the nearness of God that helped take the moment that we've had this week and really turn it into an organizational movement. And so it's not just about having good times in the presence of God, and I know we've had those but it's about going, God is giving us a glimpse into what is possible, not just once a year, not just every once in a while when we're all feeling really energetic, but I think God is giving us a glimpse into what we can be and really who we are as people. And so we're going to be setting aside time these three weekends, and uh, we hope that you'll join us. This is going to be out on social media today, so you can help share, and we'll be letting you know about some special guests who are going to be flying back and joining us in the region. So thanks again for your prayer uh, and your support. We are just scratching the surface. Guys, it's just beginning. It's just starting. And so be encouraged. Stir yourself up and uh, join us uh, on uh, those, uh, those weekends. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel and, and in chapter 6. And I'm going to share with you a message I've entitled, How We Carry Revival. How We Carry Revival. And, and I'll be sharing with you a story from the life of King David uh, as he reigns over the nation of Israel for 40 years. And one of the important decisions that he makes really at the beginning of his kingship 
and how it impacts the spiritual trajectory of that nation. I want to challenge you with an analogy this morning. If you were to go to the gas station next to the church and buy a water bottle, you'd probably be looking to spend a dollar to two dollars max. But if today you were to head to a sports stadium and buy that same water bottle, you'd be looking at five to ten dollars in that range. And for us, as we think about the value of an environment, I want you to think back to this analogy. The idea that environment is what helps establish the value system for which we assign to items, objects, and events. And so as we create an environment that honors the presence of God, it takes what seemingly seems cheap and makes it super, super valuable. And there's value in the community of God coming together in a corporate fashion and worshiping Jesus. That's why we've made the decision that we're not canceling church. We're not shutting down. We're not going to restrict the right or the ability of people to gather and to sing and to worship because there is something so valuable about what that does to the environment. As we gather here on Sunday morning, it's not just God impacting us here in the confines of this building. It's the spirit of God making waves in this community and in this region. And just because they don't understand your worship doesn't mean they're not impacted by your worship. Right? And so there might be a lot of folks in your life who go, well, I don't understand why you'd give up a weekend and be in church or why you've made the commitments you have or why you're passionate or why you're dedicated in the ways that you are. But the reality is, is just by virtue of you having a stubborn commitment to worship Jesus, to follow through on spiritual practices and disciplines, to live your life in a way that is geared or bent in the direction of pursuing his presence, it impacts people whether or not they're even able to put words to it. In 2 Samuel 6, it records the story of David taking 30,000 young men to go take back the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines. Saul has lost the Ark of the Covenant in war with the Philistines, and it's been missing from the nation of Israel at this point for about 20 years. And one of the first things that David does when he assumes the throne is that he goes back with 30,000 warriors to Philistine territory to take back the Ark of the Covenant. You might be sitting here this morning going, what's so important about the Ark of the Covenant? It was just a box. But remember, in the Old Testament, the presence of God, the Spirit of God was contained to a place. This is what's so profound about the New Covenant or the New Testament. The Spirit of God no longer dwells in places, it dwells in people. That's why scripture says you have become a temple of the Holy Ghost. Now we just take that as ordinary, but that was a revolutionary truth for people who were followers of Yahweh. This idea that no longer would you have to attend a special tent or a special tabernacle or a special temple. No longer did you have to have a special title in order to interact with the presence of God. But now the fullness of God's spirit takes residence in your life based on faith in King Jesus. So this was a revolutionary truth in the New Testament. And, 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 and it's paralleled by this, this reality in the Old Testament. The presence of God was kept in a box. Now, most people, when they think about the Ark of the Covenant, they have a flashback to like an Indiana Jones movie where people's faces are being melted and all sorts of things. But in the Old Testament, the, 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 the presence of God and, and the Ark of the Covenant was behind a tent. And they called it the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest could go and make sacrifice on behalf of the people in the Holy of Holies as he ministered 
in and interacted with the presence of God. It was super valuable to the DNA of a nation. It was super important to the spiritual trajectory of a people. And for 20 years, it sat in Philistine territory until King David assumed the throne. Now watch what happens. In verse one of 2 Samuel 6, the Bible says this, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. They set the ark of God on a new cart, watch, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. The presence of God at this point has been missing for 20 years. And someone somewhere decided that business as usual was not enough. Isn't it amazing what churches have been able to build without the presence of God? Friend, if we gain the world and we lose our soul, then we have missed the entire point. For us, we think about the church and its primary purpose in this context. The church exists to glorify Jesus. Are there a lot of other things that the church does? Absolutely. We do evangelism and we do mission and we do adoption and we do backpack giveaways and we clean up the community and we have schools and daycares and preschool. There's a lot of things we do, but the primary thing we do is glorify God. Why? Because the church doesn't exist for you and it doesn't even exist for them. It exists for him. The church exists for Jesus. And the church is the gathering of God's people. And as we bless and minister to the heart of God, in return, watch, he blesses and ministers to the heart of us. The church exists to glorify Jesus. And for 20 years, the nation of Israel founded on the idea that, G, that God was Lord, that, that hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. This idea that the triune God oversaw the theocratic nation of Israel for 20 years, they had missed out on the presence of God until someone somewhere decided that business as usual was not enough. Can I tell you, every great revival begins when someone somewhere decides that what we have done isn't going to work for where we are going. Every move of God is, pre pre is, is predicated on people rediscovering a hunger for the things of God. But the Bible says here that David takes 30,000 young men, they're going back to take the Ark of the Covenant, but in doing so, they actually violate one of the principles of God. In Numbers 4, Moses outlines how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be transported. It was supposed to be transported only on the shoulders of the Levites and the priests. But watch what verse 3 says. Instead, man built a cart or man built a program or a strategy, or an initiative, or an organization. E.M. Bounds, the great 19th century Methodist minister said this, the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. Friend, programs don't carry revival, people carry revival. Because revival isn't an object to be held, but instead an experience to be had. And programs can't take you where personal commitment and dedication will. And so often, in our pursuit of the holy, we project our own responsibility onto somebody else's ability to build something to sustain what God is doing. And can I tell you, in this hour, the way that revival is sustained in our community is by men and women of God recognizing that first you're a priest unto him and you've got a responsibility to put this on your shoulders, which means this, it's not enough for me to be revived on your behalf. It's not enough for the church to be revived on your behalf. It's not enough to have a weekend or a schedule or a program or an organization. Revival tarries when men and women of God accept the responsibility to carry his presence on their shoulders. 
but build us a, build us a cart and we'll get the oxen to carry it. Build us a program, we'll get somebody else to labor for it. Build us an organization, we'll get somebody else to build it. And yet God is inviting you to carry this for yourself. And when you carry revival for yourself, you sense the weight of its responsibility on your shoulders. When you carry revival for yourself, you ordain your steps in the way that you should go, that you never depart from it. When you carry revival for yourself and your family and your sphere of influence, you operate with a fear of God that helps order your days, that helps redeem the time. Why? Because you're personally connected. It's not what somebody else is doing for me. It's an invitation that I've responded to Personally, watch in verse five, David and all Israel were celebrating with their might, all their might before the Lord with harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Watch what it says here in verse six. When they came to the Threshing floor. Friend, the threshing floor was a place where the wheat and the chaff was separated. A winnowing fork was used to throw the mixture into the air so that the wind could blow away the chaff, leaving only the good grain on the floor. Ruth met Boaz on the threshing floor. Gideon set out a fleece before the Lord on, on the threshing floor. The prophets ministered to Jehoshaphat at the threshing floor. The Lord sent his angel to judge Israel at the threshing floor. Every move of God takes people to the place of separation, to a place of choosing, to a place of consecration with this central question, is what God offers enough? Do you know that God in his grace removes unnecessary things from your life because he knows that where you're going can't hold that much baggage. Here's the bad news. Some stuff in your life absolutely has to die in order for you to move forward. Here's the good news. Anything you give up in the pursuit of God pales in comparison to what you gain. This is the great paradox of a revival culture that God is continually inviting us to the threshing floor by which he separates the wheat from the weeds, the wheat from the tares. And in doing so, he allows us to go through an examination of self, of spiritual center, of soul commitments by which he helps illuminate and illustrate the things that we think we need versus the things that we actually need. You know, one of the key signs that you're growing in spiritual maturity is that you're able to di differentiate between what you think you need and what you actually need. Some of you have this experience every time you travel because you always pack 3X what you actually need. You thought you needed it. You lugged it around. It was a total pain in the butt to bring it on the plane. It didn't fit in the overhead compartment. It weighs too much. You had to pay extra on your ticket. You're knocking everybody in the airport, dragging it behind you for a 24-hour stay in California. You thought you needed it, but you didn't actually need it. Can I tell you, revival does the same thing for your spirit. There are things that you thought you need that you have paid a price to carry around with you, and all it has been is baggage that has cost you and cost people around you, sometimes for years and other times for decades. And God, in his grace, does surgery with a scalpel to remove what you thought you needed so he could give you what you actually need. And this is what God has invited us into, the, the threshing floor. 
Revival takes people to that place of separation, to that place of choosing. That's why the easiest place for you to hide out is in a spiritually dead church because it never takes you to a place of choosing. You never have to choose passion. You never have to choose desire. You never have to choose obedience. You can just choose to sit in the back and be unmoved by spiritually dead things. But when you get in revival, all of a sudden you feel like, man, God's called me to the valley of decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. All of a sudden, God's inviting me into commitment. He's inviting me into leadership. He's inviting me into giftedness. Now, all of a sudden, I sense a mandate on my life to do something and to be something. See, that's why when you leave after I get done preaching, a lot of you end up feeling agitated because what I am doing is I am confronting lazy Christianity that has plagued the church in the West. No, God's put a mandate on your life to do something, friend, and to be something. And there has never been a better time for you to be a part of the harvest. And I'm not trying to recruit you from where you've been, but I am trying to issue you an invitation for where we're going. That God, by his spirit, would thrust out labors into the harvest field. That you would sense there has never been a better time for me to be engaged with my faith. No, I'm not just going to witness history. I'm going to be a part. I'm going to be a part. Watch what happens. When they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and he took hold. He steadied. He managed. He controlled the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Watch. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Watch, as soon as you try to control revival, either you will kill it or it will kill you. You can't manage revival. You either let God have his way or you get in the way. And do you know why revival comes with manifestations? Because you don't get fire without a little chaos. The start of revival is similar to the birth of a baby. In a few days, you can begin to tell personality and mannerisms and temperament. And what are the markers of this move of God? I think it's baptisms. I think it's salvations. I think it's healings. I think it's exuberant worship. I think it's falling under the power of God. And God sends manifestations to test the purity of a move. Will you get distracted? Will you get offended? Will you judge somebody else's expression? Hear me. Stumbling is part of the journey. Hear me. Some folks have traded a relentless pursuit of Jesus for a nice, safe, sanitized, manicured religious expression that never moves their heart, never disrupts their schedule, never requires their finances, never inconveniences their life. But friend, that isn't this. A righteous man stumbles, a passionate person stumbles, a revived person stumbles, but they get back up. The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah, in all his wisdom and brilliance, thought thought to himself, God just might need my help to stabilize this thing. God doesn't need your help for anything. He invites you into partnership, and then for whatever reason, shares his glory with you. It literally doesn't make any sense. But God doesn't need your help in the PR department as it pertains to a move of his spirit. And here's the problem. We pray for revival, but then it shows up and makes us uncomfortable because it takes us to the threshing floor. So instead of allowing the ark to rest,
Christ. We try to control it and stabilize it. I, I liked when services were 60 minutes. I liked when everybody play, played my favorite song. I, I liked when the pastor didn't preach on sin. Uh, the, the carpet is a little wet from the, from the spontaneous baptisms. It's not as clean as I liked it before. And in doing so, we stabilize the ark. We pray for revival and then curse it with our actions. You can't control this wild God. He is not to be locked in a cage. He is not managed by your programs. He is not stabilized by your head. No, like a roaring lion, we allow him to march in the streets of the Northwest. And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done in this place, even as it's being done in heaven. God doesn't need your permission. Oh, it's, it's rocking a little bit. I better stabilize this thing. I like revival, but I don't like any of those manifestations. Oh, they offend me a little bit. No, I, just, I don't understand that. It don't make sense in my mind. And, and all of a sudden, we allow offense to become a roadblock to the thing that God desires to do. Listen, offense doesn't stop God. It stops you. I'm getting too fired up. Now, watch. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. Watch, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring up the ark of, the God, of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Hear me. God uses the blessing of your life to provoke godly jealousy in the life of somebody else. That's why testimony is so important. That's why the apostle John says in Revelation 19, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. prophecy. Testimony is prophetic in nature. I wish the Lord would use me in a word of wisdom. I wish the Lord would use me in a prophetic act. Just tell your testimony. That all may prophesy, it's really easy. No, we've made prophecy weird. It's like a psychic telling the future. No, it's literally a Christian telling their story. That's prophecy. <laughs> prophecy is less information and it's more confirmation about what God is already doing. So when we tell the story of revival in the Northwest, we are prophesying to dry bones in this region. It is time to wake up and get up and be revived because God sees an army. That's what testimony does. David gets mad. And so he goes back home. But the presence of God in a box sits in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Watch. The Gittites were Philistines, the sworn enemy of Israel. But because God isn't a respecter of persons, his house was blessed. Now watch, this is what I love. The only other time Obed-Edom is ever mentioned is in the book of 1 Chronicles. And in the book of 1 Chronicles, the Bible says that the sons of Obed-Edom served as priests in the tabernacle. Watch, the presence of God is so powerful that it can take Philistines and turn them into priests. They weren't priests by lineage. They were priests by presence. 
That's the power of raising your family in a revival culture. Because if you were to be honest, some of you been some uncircumcised Philistines. Some of you been some enemies of God. Some of you been wild living in the world and you're just hoping that maybe your kids won't have to repeat the same mistakes that you made. And can I tell you, friend, the number one way to ensure the spiritual vitality and endurance of the next generation is to plant yourself in the river of God and refuse to be moved because the presence makes priests out of Philistines. Oh, he was a Gittite. So congratulations, David, you moved the ark of God from Philistine territory to more Philistine territory. And just because you got offended doesn't mean somebody else won't get blessed. Can I tell you, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right? In our world today, we have weaponized offense and made it the most mortal sin in culture. God forbid somebody be offended. And yet as a culture, we offend God all the time. We have made offending people the yoke of slavery that we live under. And we've made offending God just our afternoon activity. David got offended and went back home. And for 90 days, the blessing of God overtook Obed-Edom. I want you to see what this verse says. It doesn't say the ark of God visited the house of Obed-Edom. It says the ark of God rested in the house of Obed-Edom. Hear me, revival is not a visitation. It's an inhabitation of God's presence among God's people. We are not living for a nice weekend or even a great month, but a spirit-filled life that doesn't just transform you, but transforms the region you're in. That's what we're going after. I wonder when this revival moment will be over. Never, never. Because what you've been adopted into is a relentless pursuit of everything God is and everything God has. We're not looking for the presence to visit. We're looking for the presence to rest. Watch. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, verse 13, had taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Now wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Hear me. It was 7.5 miles from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. On average, there's 2,000 steps in a mile, meaning there was 15,000 steps for David to take. And every six steps for seven and a half miles straight, David stopped to sacrifice a bull and a calf. Friend, without reverence, you can't sustain revival. For seven and a half miles, every six steps, David ordered 30,000 men to stop moving so they could sacrifice unto God. Can I tell you what fuels revival? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. And there's not a special offering at the end of today's service. Don't worry. But God is interested in so much more than your money, friend. He's interested in everything that you are. And sometimes what we want is we want low sacrifice and high impact. But can I tell you, that's just not how it works. 
That's why Paul in the book of Romans says this, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Do you know the first time the word worship is ever mentioned in all of scripture is in the book of Genesis? When Abraham is taking Isaac up to the mountain to be sacrificed. The first time worship is ever mentioned is when Abraham is taking Isaac. He says, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and worship. And Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, you're it. it. For us, as we think about what it looks like to give our lives to a move of God's spirit in our region, we recognize that it won't come without cost. But what we're invited to pay is well worth it in regards to what he returns. Verse 16, I'm gonna end in this, this passage here. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, which was the wife of David, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, watch, she despised him in her heart. Now, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, the wife of David, came outside to meet him. She said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now David said to his wife, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house. <laughs> when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Watch. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Friend, you can have dignity or you can have desire, but you can't have both. Hear me. You can have control or you can have revival, but you can't have both. I don't know why people fall, but it's not unto you, it's unto him. I don't know why people jump, but it's not unto you, it's unto him. I don't know why people shake, but it's not unto you, it's unto him. I don't know why people cry or laugh or dance or run or shout, but it wasn't done before you, it was done before the Lord. And the only thing that judgment of someone else's manifestation will create is barrenness in your own life. Well, pastor, that looked fake to me. Yeah, but you have no idea what they've been through. You have no idea their testimony. You have no idea what God saved them out of. <laughs> oh, I know you was raised in a Christian home. I know you've been saved since you was two years old, but that person should have been dead. That person should have been disqualified. But God in the fullness of time sent Jesus and rescued them from the pit of hell. So if they dance, shake, shout, or cry, it ain't none of your business. It was done before God. It was done before God. See, sometimes people self-appoint themselves as everybody else's manifestation inspector as it comes to revival. But Jesus says, if you've been forgiven a little, you love a little. But if you've been forgiven much, you love much. Remember when the woman broke the costly pound of perfume at the feet of Jesus? And Judas said, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Look how stupid she looks. That was a waste. And Jesus says, no, this woman's worship 
will be a memorial to me in every generation. It's not a waste, watch, when it's done before him. And I think for us, in order to protect the purity of what God is doing here, you have to remove yourself from being everybody else's personal judge about the manifestations they have in the presence of God. Some people laugh, okay. Maybe they need the joy of the Lord. Some people cry, but maybe they're in a real season of reverence. Some people jump. Maybe they've been in pain 20 years and this is the first time they can move. Some people shake. Maybe God's shaking something out of them. Some people fall. Maybe they're overwhelmed by the glory of God. Do you remember the first time that your heart was really moved? You remember the first time that you had a first love experience with God? You remember that time when you was young at a youth camp somewhere? Somehow you had a little passion in your life? You remember what it was like when you poured out your perfume on his feet? It's not a waste when it's done before him. So I'm gonna create an atmosphere where people from every color, creed, background, origin, culture, and family system can interact with the presence of God as they see fit. Because it's not done unto you, it's done unto him. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, David's father-in-law, that's a bad situation, looks out the window and sees David coming back. Can you imagine the commotion? 30,000 celebrating. Every six steps, the entire assembly goes quiet as the priests offer burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And the daughter of Saul hears this commotion and sticks her head out the window and watches. Here's what I've found. You're a lot less likely to judge when you're a part of a movement than when you're sat standing at a window watching a movement. Yeah, we got all the critics online, you know what I mean? Uh, they're just watching. But what I found is this, in the heart of every critic is a person who is disappointed with what they've missed. Oh man, I wish I was a part of that. But instead of being honest about my own disappointment, I'm gonna weaponize it as critique for stuff I'm not involved with. And Saul's daughter, Michael, the wife of David, watches from the window. And as David gets back, she says, you look so foolish, dancing like this, half naked. And David says, I'll, I'll be even more undignified than this. Essentially this, you haven't seen anything yet. Listen, friend. If you're offended by people getting baptized mid-service, let me give you a word of wisdom. You haven't seen anything yet. If you're offended by people falling down and crying at the altar, you haven't seen anything yet. We are barely scratching the surface of what God is about to do in this community. And here's what I hear the Lord saying, exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. That's what God desires to do in this moment. And what he's looking for is people who will say yes, because the King of glory is coming. The King of glory is here. There are ancient gates that are opening. There are ancient doors that are swinging wide. And God is just looking for people, men and women, who will say, God, I'll be even a little undignified.
inside if it means that your glory rests on this house. We are not living for a good weekend. We are not living for an excited service or the round of applause for a special guest who flies in on a plane. We are living for an unmitigated, unmeasured outpouring of God's spirit in this hour that will rest on this house in this community. And here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see other cities come into the harvest. We're gonna see other churches come into the fold. We're gonna see other campuses sprout out. I can't tell you when, I can't tell you how, I can't tell you where, but I can tell you this, what I sense in my spirit is God saying, I'm placing something unusual and unique on this house and what it will be is like a lighthouse to other people who have been in dry and thirsty places, who have just been praying and believing that God by his spirit one more time would pour out on his people. You are sitting in what other people have prayed for. You are sitting in what other people have contended for. And we haven't seen anything yet. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. And the Bible says this of David, that he danced with all his might, so much so that his outer garment fell off and he was down to just his linen ephod. The linen ephod was the clothing of the priests. Hear me. David was a king on the outside, watch, but a priest on the inside. I want you to know today that whether you're the CEO of a company, a stay-at-home mom, a college student trying to figure out what's next, working at a drive-through coffee stand, working in tech, working in healthcare, working at Amazon, what you are on the outside, hear me, pales in comparison to what you are on the inside. Friend, we are priests unto God. And sometimes you don't reveal what you really are on the inside until you're willing to get a little undignified on the outside. David danced with all his might and his wife saw him and she mocked him. She said, you're supposed to be a king. No, David says, I've always been a priest. When I was watching my father's sheep in the green pastures, I was a priest. When I was taking on Goliath in front of the armies of Israel, I was a priest. When I was running from Saul, when he wanted to kill me because I was anointed by Samuel, I was a priest priest. I have always been a priest. And that's who you and I are in this hour. And the responsibility we have is to carry his presence on our shoulders until God sees fit to rest in this place. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?